Uh, we're going to turn now to our sermon, our, our teaching for today. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and from last week, we uh, witnessed Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 plus people out of barely, almost out of nothing, uh, a couple loaves and a few fish. And out of that, he provides an abundance, and he's revealing who he is as the Messiah, that he's not just king, but he is a shepherd towards us. And like, this should be ingrained in our minds, right? Like if we witness a miracle this great and this amazing, we can never forget that. And yet for some reason, the disciples forget. I think we can all be forgetful sometimes of who our God really is. And so let's look at this passage now that really reveals what does Jesus constantly remind us of. We turn now to Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 56. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 56. And if you guys are able, can you please stand or rise with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give him our full attention today. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came by them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind seized, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring back the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard, the, uh, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated and would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer for God to bless these words? Let's all pray. Father God, the way that the pace of our life goes, we have to think about so many things in our lives. It's not just stressful, but at times overwhelming. And we forget, Lord, that you are the great shepherd of our souls and all you're asking of us is not to do impossible feats of trying to make everything work out in our lives, but what it means to trust you, what it means to have a sense of faith in you. And so, Jesus, as we bring our frazzled, our distracted, our multi-thinking and multitasking hearts to you, would we bring it to a stillness to just simply hear your voice and to ask that your spirit will work within us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So there's this uh, expression in the Christian uh, culture, um, and the expression is just simply not expression, like a, a title or a phrase, and it's simply this, a, a prayer warrior, a prayer warrior. And it's this um, description of someone who is very devoted in their faith. They are always praying to God. And this idea of a prayer warrior is something that all of us are supposed to aspire to become. Right? It sounds so valiant. Everyone should want to be like this. But the thing is, in my opinion, I think a prayer warrior is just someone who just has a lot of things that they worry about. The only difference is they know where to turn to. They turn to God. Listen, everyone here in this room, we have so many things that we worry about, we incessantly think about all the time, whether it's about our kids and the kind of friendships they make or how well they're doing at school, whether it's with our jobs, uh, whether it's with our own health. Maybe we have aging parents that we're constantly thinking about. There's many, many worries. We even worry about whether we're worried enough. So many things to worry about. And I think at the bottom line of where our worry stems from is that ultimately we're afraid of the setbacks in our lives because we got it all mapped out of what our life should look like. And so if we don't worry enough, it's not going to work out the way that we want. The disciples, they, they are faced with quite a setback here that as they face another storm, it's a dilemma for them. They worry. What can we learn about the way that they worry and what it means for our lives? Three things we're going to look at here. We're going to look at first what it means to be grounded in all the anxieties that we may have. Secondly, when it feels like God is ghosting us, how should we understand these moments? And last of all, glory. What it means to see God's glory through all the setbacks, through all the trials, through whatever hardships we may endure. Let's look at the first part, grounded. Out of all the miracles that Jesus performs, probably the feeding of the 5,000 is his greatest hit, right? Who can deny free food, right? Everyone is feasting together and they're in this frenzy and probably having a good time. So at this point, as this miracle is done, um, he's got the, Jesus has got the entire crowd at the palm of his hands. I mean, Jesus could start a campaign and, and call himself the next Caesar. And all these people, I guarantee it, they would lift him up as the new emperor of Rome. He's got these people in a frenzy. They're willing to do anything at this point. Jesus takes care of them. He feeds me free food. Or at least they want to deputize uh, or, or the thing is, as Jesus has this crowd in the palm of his hands, why not take this opportunity, at least turn them all into his disciples, right? 5,000 plus people to really do kingdom work for him. Instead of entertaining any of these thoughts, verse 45 says, immediately he made his disciples get into a boat while he dismissed the crowd. Right, he's rushing his disciples away. Like after this amazing miracle, after the crowd like, like worships Jesus, but they don't recognize him as God, he dismisses his disciples like urgently, shoos them away. 
I think Jesus knew that with the frenzy of how the crowd was thinking, he didn't want the disciples to also get caught up in their thinking. Because all the crowd wanted was like free Chick-fil-A meals, and that's all they looked at Jesus as. But they didn't see him as their savior. He was not God to them. Instead of being caught up with all the hype that's going around, Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray. And look at what verse 47 says. It says that he was all alone on the land. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is found all alone. Like all throughout the scriptures, you find that Jesus is with a crowd of people or he's with his disciples, he's ministering to someone, but here he's all alone. He gets away from the noise. Why does Jesus do this? He's grounding himself in God. He's grounding who he is before his heavenly father. That's what he's doing. You see, you and I, we, we face pressure of all different kinds. Right? We face pressure to perform academically. There's, there's the pressure of just paying off our mortgages. All pressures. And I feel like in a place like the Bay Area, there, there's, the pressure is very, very heavy a lot of times. You know what I mean? Like I talk to my neighborhood uh, my neighbors and, um, you know, when we do small talk, the first question is, what's your name? And the, the very next question they always ask is, what do you do for work? And so I tell them, I work at church. And there's like a pause for like five minutes because I know in their eyes they're lost because all their premeditated questions about the tech industry have suddenly vanished. What does it mean to work at church? And yet for that split second, I can't help but wonder, man, should I do something a little bit more important for my life? Split second. That's pressure right there. Everyone feels it. And the thing is, the pressure has a way of turning us into something we were never meant to become. And unless you are actively grounding yourself before God to know who you are before his eyes, you will get lost. This is what Jesus is doing. He's grounding himself before God. Nothing else will remind you who you are before God than to pray before him. Because prayer is the reminder that we are simply his children. And we are needy children in need of his help. That can never change. I don't know about what it's like in some of the family's households here, but like in my household, the name Amma and Appa get invoked every five minutes. Well, mostly Amma, because I, I kind of tune things out because every five minutes, the kids are saying, Amma, I'm thirsty. Amma, I found this bug. Check it out. Amma, I leveled up in Pokemon. Amma, I'm thirsty again. And like, it drives me nuts a lot of times. It's so distracting. So my favorite game to play with them is hide and seek, where I'm the seeker and the kids go hide and I don't seek, right? Amma, Appa, they're insistent, they're persistent. But every time Amma's name is invoked, Kathy actually cares and she, you know, cares for their needs and is with them all the time. Out of all the things that we think about God and his power, right? We, we think about his sovereignty and the miracles that he does. We never think to wonder and be amazed 
at the simple fact that God listens to us. That he listens to all of us in prayer. Like, it's not like whenever we bring up our prayers, right, the, the situation is not this, like, oh, as, as, let's just, just pretend I'm praying again, and it's not like God is up in heaven, and he sees, oh, Amos is praying again? Oh, it's about New Life Fremont? Okay, Angel Michael, are you busy? Come here. I want you to sit on this seat. Amos is praying again. Can you just listen to him? I'm going to go and raise the ocean somewhere and make the sunrise. Okay, you got it, Michael? I'll be back. That's not him. God? gives a 100% fully undivided attention every time we bring our prayers to him. And it's not like we have something revolutionary to bring up to him. It's not like he hasn't thought of that before, and yet that's just the simple fact that he just wants to hear us. He just wants to hear you. There, there's something endearing about this. That's what's amazing about God is that he can sit there and just listen to us. Whether it's a complaint, whether it's a praise or a plead, he's our father. He just wants to listen. This is what we need to be grounded. Because sometimes as we're grounded in God, sometimes there's pressures and seasons in our lives. There are certain setbacks that we didn't see where it could seem like God is ghosting us, like he's ignoring us. Which brings us to the second point here. In verse 47, it says that the disciples are on the sea, but in the Greek, it's actually they're in the middle of a sea, at the halfway point, somewhat of a very vulnerable position for them to be in. And the conditions of the waters is that in verse 20, uh, 38, I, or in verse uh it says in this verse that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And the connotation of painfully actually means uh, tormented or they were being harassed by the waves. A setback. And as they were facing the waves, they were facing it at roughly 3 a.m. in the morning in the pitch black darkness. And it's a little bit stormy. And in the middle of this stormy weather, pitch black, Jesus decides to walk on the waters. And as he's walking on the waters, notice what the text says in verse 48. It says, he meant to pass by them. Jesus meant to pass by his struggling disciples. Like, just imagine if you come home from all the groceries and you're carrying all the bags and you come in the house and it's really hard for you to open the door and your kids are just staring at you. Would that fly in your family? Absolutely not. And so for Jesus to just pass by these disciples, right, it's like kind of heartless. And as soon as the disciples saw this ghostly figure, they, they cry out and they scream, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. You have to understand the context here. In the ancient Near East, this idea of a ghost was highly prevalent. Right? It's nothing new. It's nothing far-fetched, at least for their time and culture. They're not ghosts like the Hollywood ghosts that we understand, like Ghostbusters, where the ghosts are illuminating and, and, and like bright and green and have bright white colors. That's, that's not how they understood ghosts back then. Ghosts were understood as shadowy figures. 
and they typically represented the spirits of the dead that were stranded on the earth. And not only this, what the culture understood back then is that they consider uh, that the waters were considered hazardous for ghosts. The ghost won't even touch it. And so the disciples in this situation, it, it, the way that they understood Jesus, or at least his figure, doesn't make sense, at least according to their time. As a matter of fact, what Jesus does here, it's, it's, more, uh, it's more of an understanding for them to understand that this must be God. Because even within the pagan culture, in the Greco-Roman culture, they understood that only the gods could walk on water. And when you look up a passage like Job chapter 9, verse 8, God is described as trampling over the seas. See, all these factors, right? They should have indicated this must be God. God is walking on the waters. But all they, all they muster up to simply say is, it must be a ghost. It must be a ghost. How do they get it so wrong? I mean, even the crowd later in the passage of verse uh, 53 through 56, even those people, they understood something about Jesus' divinity. They came to him for healing. It says that they recognized him. And yet his very own disciples have no idea who this is. See, out of everyone that should have known, it's the disciples. Yet they scream, ghost. Why is that? Why do they get so wrong? I think this is really um, how it happens in our own lives. Is that as we're met with a great pushback, a setback in our lives, there's something scary, something that we're really worried about, we think, God, why aren't you in on this? That his presence feels so absent that he might as well be a ghost. That's how it is a lot of times. I believe the disciples, you know, we are track. I, I think this. We think that we need to hear God's voice in our moments of trial and suffering, in our setbacks, and we think it would be much better if God only audibly spoke into our lives about why certain things are happening. But I really don't think we want that. Because if God literally spoke and answered every single question that we had, he would always correct us. He would always tell us why our thinking is wrong. That's too overbearing for us. God doesn't spend his time answering and responding back to us. Rather, he spends his time listening. He listens. I think the reason why the disciples didn't recognize Jesus is because of where their attention was set for, where they focused on. Because where you place your attention, your main focus, whatever that is, will shape your entire reality. Where you set your focus will shape your entire reality. My, um, my kid, he got invited to this um, birthday party, and we went to this indoor trampoline in Fremont that smelled like sweaty feet. And 
you know, all these kids were there, and I'm like at a place, and there was this one kid trying to play with my daughter Millie. And the thing is, she had this, he had this Gatorade bottle, and his brother told him, don't let anyone touch this Gatorade bottle, especially Millie. So he's just hoarding it, and he's got this tight grip on this Gatorade bottle, and Millie doesn't want it, want it. And yet he's just holding onto it. Wherever they go, they, they jump and trampoline, but he's, his eyes are set on that Gatorade bottle, making sure no one touches it, no one drinks it. And then they go rock climbing, but he can't climb up very far because he doesn't want to uh, uh, go too far from the Gatorade. You know, and I'm like, I'm like, looking at all this, here's this grand party of a trampoline and so many things to do, and all this kid is focused on is this Gatorade bottle. Like, I'll buy him another one. And that's the thing. What you set your heart on shapes your entire reality. Like, if your focus and attention is just on money, then God is only as present as you become wealthy. And if your focus and sight is on your success, then God is only as present as you are succeeding and winning in life. Where your focus is, where your attention is at, shapes your entire reality. And Jesus has to gently remind us, it's just Gatorade. Just Gatorade. Maybe the issue isn't that we worry, but that we don't worry enough about the right things. What Jesus cares for is our salvation. He wants us to see and share in his glory that despite all the setbacks we may have, his glory shows what he is truly concerned about, which brings us to our last point here. Verse 50, let's take a look. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I literally translates into I am. The very name that God reveals to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 14. You know, prior to, to uh, God um, calling Moses to save and liberate his people, you know, prior to this, the people of Israel, they were in slavery to Egypt, right? And there was this harsh, harsh conditions, slave masters driving them painfully, you know, and the, by their sweat and their bloods, people were dying and they couldn't help it anymore. And, and in Exodus, it actually says that the people cried out. But the thing is, they don't cry out to God. They just cry out because they're in anguish. That's how tormented they are. That's how much they feel harassed. That's how much in anguish their lives were. But despite the fact that they're crying out and they're not crying out to God, guess who listens? God. And so God calls up Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go liberate my people. And Moses thinks he starts to worry. What if Pharaoh doesn't listen to me? What if people laugh in my face? So what does God tell them? God tell Moses? Moses, go tell them, I am has sent you. I am has sent you. 
So Moses listens. People are freed. And now they start their wilderness journey into the promised land. And as they're freed and going into the wandering land, or the promised land, guess what happens again? Moses worries. And he says, how do I know we're going to get there? And he pleads with God, go with us or I don't want to go where we're going. And he says, if your presence is truly with us, show me your glory. And so what does God do? God says, I'll show you my glory. He tucks uh, Moses in the cleft of a rock. And what does God do? In Exodus 34, 19, he says this, I will make my goodness pass, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I am. I will pass before you so you can see my glory. Jesus wasn't just passing by here. He's revealing who he is. You know, a lot of times as a parent, I feel like I'm a professional warrior at heart. And so we always have to make sure that our kids are in the right place at the right time, right? That's every parent's heart for their kids to make sure. You can never be overly cautious for them. Right place, right time. I went camping with uh, my, my uh, in-laws um, on my day off, and we went to Big Sur. And at Big Sur, it was their first time camping. My, my uh, sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, and they have these, uh, my, two, my niece and nephews there. And so there's this, we're camped out right next to this river. And it's like a wonderful sight. It's really beautiful. And the thing about this river is that I watched all these other kids uh, getting in those tubes, and they were tubing down the stream of this river. And the beauty of this river is that it's all rocky, and so it's only ankle deep. And so we like let the kids go out and play on the river and they're having fun splashing and, um, you know, building rock dams and all that. And Miles start, uh, decides to venture off with his little cousin Elliot, who's a lot younger than him. And these boys were super excited to explore and say, they, they go on ahead. They don't wait for me. And I'm, I'm trying so hard to catch up with the, the, the ground is so rocky, it's like piercing my legs or my feet. And I'm trying to catch up to them. But as I'm busy looking down, I look up and I, I, I see Miles, but I don't see Elliot. And I, I think, Elliot, where are you? And I see this little boy's head bob into the water and then come up for breath, you know, and then he goes back down. And so we're all panicking and I'm, I'm trying my best to run after him. And, um, you know, like, I don't think he can swim at that point. And we're all running. And then all of a sudden, there's this kid in his tube, and he's got this mullet. It's an important detail for some reason. And he's in that tube, and he just grabs Elliot, and he brings him safely to the shallow end. It turns out there was this deep, uh, hidden, like, it gets really deep uh, at this stream. And if it weren't for these kids passing by in their tubes, who already passed by us and was there to block the dangerous zone. I, I don't know what could have happened. This kid was at the right place in the right time. Kid with the mullet. And that's the thing. Sometimes we can really be at the wrong place at the wrong time, but we can still be redeemed by a righteous God. Because he, 
doesn't pass by us. He's passing by because he sees something greater, a greater storm in our lives. Jesus wasn't just passing by the disciples. He's passing by to reveal his glory. And as he passes by to reveal his glory, there's another storm that he's looking at. He's looking at the floodwaters of judgment for our sin and death. And unless Jesus passes by us and faces that, we're in a world of trouble. But the glory of God faces the cosmic floodwaters of our judgment. And his glory leads him to the cross so that the goodness of God will draw near to us, will comfort us, will be the ever-present reminder, I care about you. I think if we spent just as much time drawing near to God as we do as we worry, it just might give us just enough resilience and just enough peace that we're all looking for that maybe perhaps you might end up becoming a prayer warrior of some sorts. Friends, worry less and pray no more, knowing that your God truly cares and truly draws near every time you come before him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I don't think any of us can turn off this button that we call anxiety. I mean, all of us look like we have it put together. We sound like we have it put together. But if we're honest before you, a lot of times we don't. There's a lot that we have to figure out. And at times it just seems so impossible. But God... You are the God of the impossible. And your promise is to give your all towards us when your little children come before you and when we cry out, Ghost, would that be a time for your spirit to remind us how you're there, how you care, and how you will truly carry us and lead us to where we need to be. So Lord, I don't know what kind of setbacks that befall us in our individual lives. But as we face some of these things, we pray that you would help us to brave on, knowing that our God is truly with us. The great I am has not only sent us, but promises to be with us every step of the way. Thank you for your tender mercies in your word this morning. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.